recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, ChrisBegania.org. Today is Friday, August 15, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Christogenia Europe is coming. It'll be a um, twice-monthly, we plan for now, twice-monthly program targeted at um, Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern Time in the United States. It'll be aimed at participation from our brethren in Europe. The hosts will be, at least at the beginning, myself and Sven Longshanks in Wales. We're planning the um, the first installment probably on August 31st. Watch for announcements at Christoginia.org. I will also post um, Sven Longshanks' website on the announcements. I'm not going to give it here because um, I don't think if anybody could hear me pronounce it correctly, they probably still won't be able to spell it correctly. Sorry, Sven. This is the Epistles of Paul. Romans, part 17. The Living Sacrifice is the subtitle. It's at least part of the theme tonight in Romans chapter 12. In the last segment of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, we discussed Romans chapter 11 and the broken and grafted branches of Paul's famous analogy depicting wild and cultivated olive trees. We asserted that the Romans being wild olives must have therefore been Israelites who, as a society, grew up and developed without the law and the prophets. Yet there are many who would assert that simply anyone who believes in Jesus is somehow grafted onto the olive tree. There is nothing more important to proper biblical interpretation than context. Biblical context, historical context, Yet again, there is nothing more divisive when properly interpreting Scripture than context. Christ came not to bring peace, but a sword. And Paul said in Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that is very true. The Word of God detects an infiltrator or a hypocrite very quickly. The keeping of the Word of God certainly has real-life consequences for those who abide in it. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, from verse 29, because those whom he has known beforehand, 
he has also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his Son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, these he also calls. Nobody else. And those whom he calls, these he deems worthy. While those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. In Romans chapter 9, Paul had said that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures, not from rituals, but from the calling. Paul said at Romans 11.29 that indeed the favor and the calling of Yahweh are not to be repented of. They can't be changed. Even God won't change his mind concerning the children of Israel. If the Romans, as well as the Israelite Judeans, were not among the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the chosen, and the appointed beforehand, then the purpose of Yahweh does not endure, but rather it would be broken. However, in Romans chapter 4, Paul explained that the promise was sure to all the seed of Abraham in reference to the nations which were of that seed, which proceeded from Abraham's loins, and that the Romans themselves were one of those nations. In Romans chapter 10, Paul quoted both Hosea and Isaiah from prophecies which were specific to the children of Israel of the ancient dispersions, dispersions which occurred over the many centuries before the advent of Christ, and which eventually resulted in the settlement of the nations of Europe. Then, after his explanation of the broken and grafted branches, Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 30, even as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now are shown mercy due to their disobedience. In that manner, these also are now in opposition to your mercy, so that they may have mercy shown to them. Therefore, Yahweh has enclosed all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Only Israelites, lost Israelites, Israelites of the dispersions, could ever be considered as having been disobedient to God. Since from the time of Jacob and the giving of the law to Israel, only Israel was ever expected to be obedient to God. The word of God says in Amos chapter 3, In respect to those same dispersions of ancient Israel, that you only have I known those who he foreknew. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you because you were at one time disobedient. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? 
The gospel is a call for the children of Israel to be obedient to Yahweh, their God. Those who were at one time disobedient, which could only mean the children of Israel who were in ancient times put off from Yahweh, their God. The gospel is the call for their disobedience and for their restoration to him from their punishment in captivity. There's no other purpose to the gospel. None. Period. Luke chapter 1 spells that very thing out. One place where this is prophesied is in Isaiah chapter 49. From verse 1, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from afar. Yahweh has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, as he made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand has he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver has he hid me. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel in whom I will be glorified. Paul refers this to the same thing this refers to in Romans chapter 9. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with my God. And now, saith Yahweh, that formed me from the womb, to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, of course. Most of Israel had just been scattered. Though Israel be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, those same nations, mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter 4, the nations which resulted from the scattering of Israel and the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations. Well, I also will also I will also give thee for a light to the nations that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to Him whom man despises, to Him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel. And he shall choose thee, meaning the children of Israel, and nobody else. The sin and punishment of the children of Israel is half of the story of the prophets. The election and restoration of those same children of Israel under a new covenant is the other half of the story of the prophets. Paul of Tarsus was teaching its fulfillment and nothing beyond that. Even the concept of mercy 
is meaningless without violation of the law. Yet, in all of the words of the Old Testament, there is no law, no predestination, no election, no mercy, no calling, no appointment, and no purpose mentioned by Yahweh God for any people other than the seed of Abraham found in the children of Israel. Therefore, only dispersed Israelites could be wild olives grafted into the cultivated olive tree, which is found in true Israel, which are Paul's brethren according to the flesh, as he himself explained in Romans chapter 9. His brethren according to the flesh, those who are Israelites. We see in Romans chapter 9, 35 years after the crucifixion of Christ was this epistle to the Romans written, and Paul's brethren are still reckoned according to the flesh. There is no such thing as spiritual Israel. There is no such thing as spiritual sperm. With this, we will commence with Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I encourage you, brethren, by the compassion of Yahweh, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, sacred, acceptable to Yahweh. That is your reasonable service. Also, do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind towards approval by you to do that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of Yahweh. From the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, we see the apostle express the same idea which Paul does here. The Christian should live their lives as living sacrifices to their God. And Peter wrote from verse 1, Therefore, putting off all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, as a newborn infant you must yearn for the pure rational milk in order that by it you would grow into preservation. If you taste that the prince is benevolent, taste being an allegory for experience, if you accept his word and his mercy, coming forth to him, a living stone, indeed having been rejected as unfit by man but honored elect before God, and yourselves as living stones are built a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Yahweh through Yahshua Christ, the living sacrifice. Living stones making spiritual sacrifices. While in Romans chapter 6, Paul was discussing the relationship 
of a reconciled Israel to the law of God and to sin. There is an idea which must be, which must be expressed in relation to what we see Paul discuss here, that of the living sacrifice, which we see that Peter had similarly described in his first epistle. From Romans 6, where Paul explains the true Christian baptism from verse 3, or are you ignorant that as long as we are immersed in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are immersed? So we were buried with him through that immersion into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the honor of the Father, so then, in newness of life, should walk, we should walk. Therefore, if united we have become in the likeness of his death, then also we shall be of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body would be left void of guilt, that no longer are we in bondage to guilt. Therefore, dying, one is judged worthy apart from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer lords over him. Therefore, when he died, the guilt of upon all died, but because he lives, he lives to Yahweh. In that manner, you also consider yourselves to be dead indeed in sin, but living to Yahweh in Christ Yahshua. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, for which to submit to its desires. Neither should you surrender your members as instruments of wrongdoing in error, but present yourselves to Yahweh as living from the dead, living stones, spiritual sacrifices, a living sacrifice, and your members as instruments of righteousness to Yahweh. To die with Christ, is to deny ourselves and offer our lives for our brethren as Christ did. This is how Christians live to Yahweh. How can they live for their God? Becoming instruments of righteousness to Yahweh by making themselves living sacrifices. From Matthew chapter 16, we read this. Then Yahshua said to his students, If one desires to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he who would wish to save his life shall lose it, and he who would lose his life because of me shall find it. For what shall it benefit a man if perhaps he should gain the whole world but his life is lost. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with the splendor of his Father, with his messengers, and then he shall render to each according to his practice. From John chapter 15, we read, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I 
have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Christ, giving his life for his brethren, is our example. And Christians, in turn, offering themselves for their brethren, must bear in mind that their brethren are reckoned according to the flesh. That is how Paul reckoned his brethren, and the definition has not changed. While Christ said in another place that those who do the work of God are his brethren, Christ only came for Israel, and only the children of Israel can possibly do the work of Yahweh. Therefore, the brethren of Christ are accounted from those of the children of Israel who seek to do the work of Yahweh. If you're not one of the children of Israel, and you, you purport to be doing the work of Yahweh, well, he says to you, Get away from me. I never knew you because the word of God says that Yahweh only knew, only acknowledged, only recognized the children of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 41, from verse 8, But now, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. This is being fulfilled in the gospel of Christ, and therefore Christians should not be deceived by satanic and Jewish egalitarianism. However, giving one's life for one's brethren does not mean that one must die literally, but rather that one must be devoted to his brethren. Otherwise, Christians could not be living sacrifices. Doing so, they must be careful not to exalt themselves, but must deny themselves instead. In other words, Christians should not live solely for their own gratification. From Matthew chapter 13, the words of Christ, but you should not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And you shall not be called your father upon the earth, for one is your father, the heavenly. Neither should, should you be called guides, because one is your guide, the Christ. And he who is greater among you shall be your servant, but whoever should exalt himself shall be humbled, and whoever should humble himself shall be exalted. That does not mean sitting in the mud in a swamp 
in Missouri in a pig pen. Therefore I say, through the favor which is given to me, to each that are among you, not to think proudly above where it is proper to think, but to think with a sound mind as Yahweh. To each has imparted a measure of faith. From Job chapter 40, from verse 9. Hast thou an arm like God, or can thou thunder with the voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold, every one that is proud and debase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. An imprecatory prayer. In the Old Testament worldview, the proud are those who put trust in themselves and in their own judgments rather than trusting in Yahweh God and his judgments. Therefore, the proud are frequently associated with the wicked. From Psalm 40, from verse 4, blessed is that man that makes Yahweh his trust, and respects not the proud, nor such as turn to lies. From Psalm 119, verse 51, the proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law, I remember thy judgments of old, O Yahweh, that I have comforted myself and have comforted myself. Horror has taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. In contrast to the proud, the humble are they who submit themselves to the law and judgments of God. In the epistle of James, chapter 4, from verse 10, we read, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he shall exalt you. The meek are those who humble themselves before God, who subject themselves to his word and seek to serve him. But this does not mean that we give place to wickedness. Since in that same chapter, James said, from verse 6, but more greatly, he gives savor, on which account it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives savor to the humble. Therefore, subject yourselves to Yahweh, but stand against the false accuser, and he shall flee from you. Romans 12, verse 4. Just as in one body we have many members, but the members all do not have the same function, in this manner we are many in one body with Christ, and each one members of one another. I have a long literary note here. 
Notably, Paul makes a lengthier example of this analogy regarding the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is also notable that this analogy was frequently used in the profane Greek and Latin literature in the middle of a Socratic dialogue concerning brotherly relations between two men, Terophon and Terocrates, I'll say it that way, which includes a discussion comparing baseness and bribery with kindness and humility. Xenophon, who was a Greek historian, soldier, and student of Socrates from the late 5th centuries and 4th centuries BC, wrote in his memorabilia in Book 2, and I quote, Well, in that case, I presume you will have shown that you, meaning Caracrates, are honest and brotherly. He, meaning Caraphon, that he is base and unworthy of kindness. But I am confident that no such result will follow. For I think that as soon as he is aware of your challenge to this contest, he will be all eagerness to outdo your kind words and actions. What if a pair of hands refused the office of mutual help for which God made them and tried to thwart each other? Or if a pair of feet neglected the duty of working together for which they were fashioned and took you hampering each other? That is how you two are behaving at present. Parts of the body that are in disagreement, don't do the body any good. Would it not be utterly senseless and disastrous to use for hindrance instruments that were made for help? And moreover, a pair of brothers, in my judgment, were made by God to render better service one to the other than a pair of hands and feet and eyes and all the instruments that he meant to be used as fellows. For the hands cannot deal simultaneously with things that are more than six feet or so apart. The feet cannot reach in a single stride things that are even six feet apart. And the eyes, though they seem to have a longer range, cannot at the same moment see things still nearer than that. It's summer in front and some behind. But to brothers, when they are friends, act simultaneously for mutual benefit, however far parted one from the other. Xenophon's Memorabilia, Book 2, Chapter 3. Plato, another student of Socrates, was a contemporary of Xenophon. Plato, some of his philosophies are said to resemble those of the later, I'll call them Jewish writings, but some also resemble the Old Testament. Plato is also said to have been influenced by Pythagoras, and Pythagoras is in turn said to have had writings from the Hebrew Old Testament as an inspiration. 
and certainly he did, from the quotes that I've seen. It is not that Christian philosophy came from the Greeks. Rather, Greek philosophy and Greek culture find their roots in that of the Hebrews. Paul often quoted from, or used, analogies borrowed from the classical Greek and Roman writers, and this is one example of many. Other Greek and Latin writers made use of this same analogy, which compares members of a community with the parts of the human body and the community itself as a body. Therefore, the body hurts when one member of the community is not working with the rest of the body. An example of that is made by Livy in the history of Rome in his second book, in chapter 32, Cicero also used the analogy. Paul of Tarsus, being educated in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the profane authors of the, class, of the classical world, was uniquely qualified to bring the gospel to the dispersed of the ancient Israelites who, along with some of the tribes of the Japetites, were indeed the authors of the classical world. Paul was qualified to reach both parties, being educated in all of their literature. Verse 6, But having varying gifts, according to the favor which is given to us, whether interpretation of prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or service in the ministry, or he that is teaching in education, or he that encourages in encouragement, he that is sharing with simplicity, he that is leading with diligence, he showing mercy with cheerfulness. In reference to the phrase in verse 6, interpretation of prophecy, the Greek word prophetia is the gift of interpreting the will of the gods to the profane pagan Greek writers. And in the New Testament, it is the gift of expounding scripture, of speaking and preaching according to Liddell and Scott. With this, I would agree in part. And the Greeks had other words, such as mantia, which describe the ability of divination by itself. However, as it is used in the New Testament, there are three aspects of prophecy, which this word prophetia describes. Here and elsewhere in Paul's epistles, very frequently, the word is rendered as interpretation of prophecy, or even as the gift of interpretation of prophecy. In some places, it is rendered in the Christogenian New Testament as expounding of Scripture, or interpretation of Scripture. 
These are all in accord with the use of the word as a description of those who have the ability to explain the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. However, in some places, and in an appropriate context, the word should simply be rendered as prophecy. 1 Timothy 1.18 is an example. There, Paul used the word in accordance with the Old Testament usage, where Yahweh God revealed the future through chosen men who put those revelations into poetic writing. And those men were therefore called prophets. Therefore, we see that the same term applied both to the prophets themselves and to their later interpreters. But there was a third way in which these terms were used. In 1 Corinthians 14.24, Paul clearly used these terms in the same way that the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4 is recorded as having used the corresponding noun for prophet. That is, of one who has the ability to reveal things which would otherwise be unknown. Yahshua revealed to the woman certain aspects of her personal life that no stranger should know. And she responded by saying, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, speaking of an unbeliever, having come into the Christian assembly, that with such prophecy, thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God. So wherever we see phrases such as interpretation of prophecy in the Christian New Testament, often that only comes from this word, prophetia. Translating the Christian New Testament, an attempt was made to determine which of these three ways that these terms were used wherever they appear. The attempt is made from the context and to make an appropriate translation. Of course, we are not going to be perfect when we are compelled to do such a thing. In reference to the phrase service in the ministry, both words are diaconia. The phrase may have been rendered service in a service or ministering in the ministry. The word diaconia was basically used to describe servants, waiting men, messengers, among other things. And that is the proper sense of the word minister. The word minister should only be seen as a synonym for servant. And the King James Version usually translates diaconia as ministry. The Greek word diakonos and its related words, 
diaconia, diaconeo, which is the verb, were at times abused by the translators of the King James Version, and they did it purposely. And those words are often abused today. The word diaconus is a servant, and in the New Testament, it is usually used to describe one who performs a service either to a Christian assembly or to God himself. The King James Version alternately translated the word diaconus as deacon, as minister, or sometimes as servant in a way that dishonestly gave the appearance that scripture would uphold the structure of the offices of the Anglican Church, the Church of England. They purposely translated a lot of words in the New Testament to uphold the designated structure of the Church of England. The word diaconus must be contrasted with the word doulas. Doulas, Strong's 1401, is also often servant or bondman in the New Testament. A doulas is properly an involuntary servant or slave and originally referred to someone who was born as a bondman or slave. A diaconus may refer to a voluntary or to a hired servant. The word diaconia was used of the mission to spread the gospel, but it was also used of menial tasks, tasks such as Martha's serving of food to those who were listening to Christ. We see that at Luke 10.40. Or to the seven, the seven men who were chosen by the people to oversee the, the dispensation of sustenance to the widows in Acts chapter 6. Therefore, a minister or a servant or a diaconist a minister can serve the people of God in many different capacities and not merely in the pulpit. In fact, most of the people in the pulpit are screwing the people of God. Christ said that whosoever will be great among you, let him be your diaconus or servant. Whoever wants to be great in a Christian assembly better wash everybody see and do it sincerely better be your servant in reference to the phrase he did his sharing with simplicity the word for simplicity here may have been rendered as sincerity some translations of this passage here in Romans Romans chapter 12 verse 8 Some translations translate this word here as liberality, which is plainly dishonest. That's a crime. The King James Version did not make that error here, but it did misinterpret the same word in that manner in other places. We will point them out 
when we get to the letters to the Corinthians. The word haplotes is singleness, simplicity, frankness. By no means can it be liberality as the RSV, the revised standard version, has it here. Unless, of course, organized religion has a tendency to steal by weighing down the consciences of the faithful. That's what they do. He did a sharing with liberality. No, that's not what Paul said. He said he did a sharing with sincerity. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapters 34 and 35, we see what constitutes righteous giving. From verse 18, He that sacrifices of a thing wrongfully gotten, his offering is ridiculous, and the gifts of unjust men are not accepted. The Most High is not pleased with the offerings of the wicked, neither is he pacified for sin by the multitude of sacrifices. Therefore, Christians do not want the gifts as gifts the fruits of crime. Whoso brings an offering of the goods of the poor does as one that kills the son before his father's eyes. The bread of the needy is their life. He that defrauds him thereof is a man of blood, and therefore Christians do not expect or require tithes, gifts, offerings from the poor. They are not obligated to do such things, unlike the Catholic requirement. Verse 6, The offering of the righteous makes the altar fat, and the sweet savor thereof is before the Most High. The sacrifice of the just man is acceptable, and the memorial thereof shall never be forgotten. Give Yahweh his honor with a good eye, simplicity, singleness, and diminish not the fruits of thine hands. That word, hapotes, simplicity, singleness, is closely related to the word meaning single, found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, where Christ said, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, meaning sincere, the whole body shall be full of light. In all thy gifts show a cheerful countenance and dedicate thy tithes with gladness. Give unto the Most High according as he has enriched thee, and as thou hast gotten, give with a cheerful eye, for Yahweh recompenses and will give thee seven times as much. However, there is an admonition, a warning to giving, to sharing with our brethren, in that one must have communion only with the godly and never with the ungodly. From the wisdom of Sirach, from chapter 12, from verse 4, give to the godly man, and help not a sinner. Do well unto him that is lowly, 
but give not to the, to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread, and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. For else thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all the good thou shalt have done unto him. For the Most High hates sinners and will repay vengeance to the ungodly and keeps them against the mighty day of their punishment. Give unto the good and help not the sinner. These gifts mentioned here by Paul are for the most part spiritual gifts, the interpretation of prophecy, service in a ministry, teaching, encouragement, sharing, the ability of which must come from the more worldly talents, leading, leading, not ruling, as the King James Version reads here, and even the showing of mercy. They are all spiritual gifts. In the Old Testament, there seems to be no general statement such as this one which explains the various gifts distributed to the individual children of God. However, it was indeed perceived that a man's abilities were a dispensation from God. Therefore, speaking of Joseph's travail in Egypt, we see these words in Acts Chapter 7. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. There are other such examples which are made, namely of David, Moses, Samuel, Daniel, but all of these were great prophets and leaders. However, of lesser gifts, there are also clear examples, or at least of gifts which appear to be lesser when compared to the impact which these great prophets and leaders had on the children, on on the body of Christ, collectively. One such example of a man skilled in artistry and building is given of the tabernacle in the wilderness. While the details of the design of the tabernacle were given to Moses, along with the details of its operation, as they are found in Exodus chapters 25 through 30. In chapter 31, it says this about the actual construction of the tabernacle and its various accoutrements. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cutting works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in the cutting of stones to set them 
and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. What we perceive as a skill is actually a gift from God. And since we all have quite different abilities, we are obliged to use them for the common benefit of our brethren, regardless of the esteemed value of our individual gifts. If Yahweh God made one man a rocket scientist, that man is still no better than his kinsman, who is only a butcher or a carpenter. Verse 9. Love without acting. That word is anupocritus. It's without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was actually the word that the Greeks used. The word which we the Greek word which we get hypocrisy from, to the Greeks meant acting. Love without acting, abhorring wickedness, cleaving to goodness, brotherly love, affection towards one another, in honor preferring one another, with diligence not hesitating. That's one sentence, even though it spans from verses 10 to 11. In honor, preferring one another with diligence, not hesitating. Fervent in spirit, serving the prince. Now at the end of verse 11, the Codex Claromontanus has serving at the proper times rather than serving the prince. Evidently, some scribe was confused between the word kurios and the word kairo, kahiro, meaning time, or the proper time, the right time, the season. The word spude, Strong's number 4710, <laughs> it's certainly the, the word from which the English word speed comes from. Regardless of the fact that it's accompanied with the article here, the word spude does not mean business, as the King James Version has it. And I've not found any lexicon, excuse me, I've not found any lexicon which attempts to assign such a meaning to the word. Not Strong's, not Thayer, not the Dellen Scott, not any of the modern lexicons found in the Bible work software. Rather, the Greek word spude is haste, speed, zeal, pains, exertion, trouble. And therefore, the phrase, te spude me akneroi, is a continuation of what preceded it. Opposed to the idea of hesitation or timid, timid, timidity, <coughs> I'm sorry, I have something in my throat. 
<laughs> opposed to the idea of hesitation or the idea of timidity found in the word akneros. The word spude is expressing the idea that Christians should prefer one another with diligence, with speed. They should be quick to prefer one another without hesitating, without being timid. The statement is clearly an instruction by Paul for Christians to discriminate in favor of their fellows and to discriminate with diligence and that it is honorable to discriminate in favor of their fellows, their Christian brethren. Therefore, when we do business, when we trade in merchandise, when we hire laborers or services or whatever else we engage in, this is a, an important lesson Christians lost long ago. I think as soon as the Jew opened the first department store. Probably before that. Whatever else we engage in, if we do not first seek out Christian brethren by whom to do these things, we have failed. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 34, verse 21, the bread of the needy is their life. He that defrauds him thereof is a man of blood. He that takes away his neighbor's living slays him. And he that defrauds the laborer of his hire is a bloodshedder. You go to that Arab store down a block and buy a gallon of milk because it's a block shorter walk than the store owned by the white guy, you're killing your brother. You buy a table made in China because it's 20 bucks cheaper than a table made by the white guy, you're killing your brother. Because you're taking away his living. From 1 John chapter 3, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, become that living sacrifice on behalf of your Christian Israel brethren. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Perhaps the greatest failure of our people is economic, that they do not support their Christian brethren in labor and in trade. But this is an important component to these teachings from the New Testament. 
and they're quick to enrich themselves by hiring or trading with aliens and antichrists. If one clings to aliens to enrich himself, one is not seeking to be that living sacrifice. You're just going to be eaten by wolves. Rejoicing in expectation. I'm sorry. Yes, verse 12. Persevering in afflictions, firmly persisting in prayer, sharing. That word is the word which gives us communion, koinonia. Having communion, taking part in, sharing in the needs of the saints, those who are sanctified, separated, and devoted to God. The children of Israel who have separated themselves from the world. They are the saints, and you should be with them. Sharing in the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Rejoicing in expectation. Verse 12. Paul, both, both Paul and the other apostles taught that the return of Christ was imminent. It was any time now. For the simple reason the Christians should indeed live each day of their lives as if it were imminent. As Christ is recorded saying in Matthew chapter 25 in verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Imagine this. If the first Christians thought and taught that the coming of the Son of Man would be 2,000 years or longer, and the beast would prevail for all that time, there may not be a Christianity today. There probably wouldn't be. 2,000 years, why should I copy this Bible? Who cares about 2,000 years from now? I'll be dead. Well, they were taught to treat each day as if it were imminent. And that for us preserves our race, our traditions, and our expectations along with our faith. From Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 17. Let not thine heart envy sinners. In other words, don't get lured away from Christ by the hedonism in the world. But be thou in fear of Yahweh all the day long. For surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. It will be fulfilled. Persevering in afflictions, David wrote in the 23rd Psalm, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, 
they comfort me. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles, upon being persecuted by the authorities in Jerusalem and being released, had departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, the name of Christ. That is how Christians should view all of their trials. Firmly persisting in prayer, the apostles were told to remain in prayer not in order that some laundry list of personal desires may be granted, but that they themselves would not enter into temptation. Matthew chapter 26, Joshua told Peter to watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The idle Christian mind should meditate on the gospel, on the works, and on the law of Yahweh his God. From Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Likewise, from the first psalm, it's a reason why this is the very first psalm. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, scornful but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Those people who want to meditate on emptiness, they're going to be returned with emptiness, or they're going to get themselves in trouble. Those people who meditate on the word of God reform their minds, becoming one with the will of God. It works. Even though we don't achieve it perfectly, we become much better men for it and much better women. Sharing in the needs of the saints. The Codex Claromontanus has Menias or remembrance here, rather than cryos or need. But perhaps that would not change the verse's meaning. As Paul writes this very letter, in perhaps 57 or early 58 AD, he himself is on his way to Jerusalem for the same reason. And he explains that in Romans chapter 15, where he says, but now I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it is pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Verse 14. Speak well to those who persecute you. Speak well and do not curse. 
the Codex Vaticanus wants the word for you. The 3rd century papyrus P46 has the entire verse to read, speak well to those who persecute and do not curse. It's abbreviated and not as poetic. David always spoke well to Saul, never spoke evil of him, only praying to Yahweh for deliverance from those who wanted his life. And even those prayers did not mention Saul by name. Christ spoke well, even to the Sadducees when they confronted him, but he told them the truth. Christ spoke well to Pilate. Paul spoke well to his captors, but nevertheless, Christ told Pilate the truth. Paul told his captors the truth. The word curse here is a Greek word, Kadara Omahi, Strong's number 2672, and it means to call down curses upon, to imprecate upon, to utter imprecations. And therefore, Paul is telling us not to desire and pray for evil to come upon those who persecute us. Now, that does not preclude us from praying to Yahweh to execute his judgment against those who hate him or who hate us for his sake. Neither does it preclude from telling the truth about our enemies or his, even if just by telling the truth, persecution in turn. Note that while Christ spoke well to Pilate, he would not even speak to Herod, who was certainly an Edomite, who was certainly one of his enemies. Verse 15, rejoice with those who are rejoicing, lament with those who are lamenting of the same mind towards one another, not thinking of lofty things, but accommodating oneself to those that are humble. Do not be wise on account of yourselves. Very much like the advice in the wisdom of Sirach in chapter 7, from verse 34. Fail not to be with them that weep, and mourn with them that mourn. Be not slow to visit the sick, for that shall make thee to be beloved. Whatsoever thou takest in hand, remember the end, and thou shalt never do amiss. The admonition not to be wise on account of yourselves may be clarified in Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 7. Be not wise in thine own eyes, and fear Yahweh, and depart from evil. Of course, the author of Proverbs explains that true wisdom is wisdom from Yahweh God, and that is the wisdom which men should seek. From Isaiah chapter 5, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. 
Proverbs chapter 16, verse 17. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is opposition to the word of God. Humility is submission to the word of God. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He that handles a matter wisely shall find good, and whoso trusteth in Yahweh, happy is he. The wise in heart shall be called prudent, those who seek the wisdom of God. And the sweetness of the lips increases learning. Romans 12.17 To no one returning evil in place of evil, having noble intentions in the presence of all men. If possible, that's a big phrase here, if possible from yourselves being at peace with all men. Once again, there is a similar statement from Peter found in 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 9 where he admonishes not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing. Blessing, the Greek word means to speak well of. Knowing that you are thereunto called and that you should inherit a blessing if possible on the part of the Christian. One must be at peace with all men. But this does not preclude the Christian from fighting. If possible, we should be at peace. However, fighting should only be necessary as a final resort. Even Christ told the apostles, he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one foreseeing the day that he would not be with them, and they would have to defend themselves. Any need for self-defense is also not precluded by the next admonition, found in Romans 12:19. Not taking vengeance yourselves, beloved. Self-defense is not vengeance. There's a difference. Rather, you must give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will requite, says Yahweh. Here Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. To me belongs vengeance. Literally in the Greek of Paul, for me is vengeance, is how it would be translated. To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For Yahweh shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left when we are at our weakest moment. And he shall say, where are their gods? Their rock in whom they trusted, a reference to the idolatry, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you 
and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of the servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Verse 20. Now, if your enemy were to hunger, feed him with scraps. If he thirsts, give him drink. For doing this, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. This verb, somizo, Strong's number 5595, gave me a difficult time. This verb is fully, according to Liddell and Scott, to feed with sops or tidbits. Its corresponding noun, somos, is a morsel or a bit. My intention, translating this passage of Romans, was to contrast this word to other Greek words, which may mean to feed, of which there are a great number. Certainly, Paul is not telling us to feed our enemy in the sense of continual support or nourishment. The word would be basco, or to make him a meal, or wine and dine him at dinner, which would be daipnizo, or to dispense food to him in large quantities, which would be nemo. There are other words yet. However, hopefully the reason for my rendering here is supported. In hindsight, morsels may have been a better translation than scraps, but the meaning of the passage, I believe, is that when your enemy hungers, you should give to him whatever spare food you may have in order to sufficiently ward off his immediate calamity, which would be, starvation. In the passage which Paul is quoting from the Masoretic text, it says, bread to eat. If your enemy with the hunger, give him bread to eat. Paul's quotation in Romans agrees with the Codex Vaticanus manuscript of the Septuagint. The Codices Alexandrinus and Sinaiticus those copies of the Septuagint have another Greek word, trepho, which does mean to support or to nourish. From the King James Version of Proverbs chapter 25, from verse 21, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he, thirst, if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, 
and Yahweh shall reward thee. Christians are not required, however, to feed non-Christians. Just as the words of Proverbs were not meant for Canaanites or Edomites or others of God's enemies. We care. We are obligated to have care for our enemies who are of our people. We must not let the enemies of Yahweh, our God, take advantage of our Christian love for one another by abusing the scripture and allowing them to force themselves upon us. There is no scripture which supports that. Therefore, Paul's words here cannot be misconstrued to contradict the words of the Apostle John in his second epistle where he wrote from verse 9, each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house, and do not welcome, speak to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Paul is not contradicting John. Paul taught this same idea. He didn't state it so succinctly, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in closing that epistle, he had asked the assembly, the assembly thusly, and I quote from verse 1, For what remains, pray, brethren, for us, in order that the word of the prince may move quickly and be extolled, even justice with you, and that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. And those disgusting and wicked men are the same people John talks about, where he says, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him, for he's speaking. To welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Paul goes on to say, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, but trustworthy is the prince or the Lord who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. We don't feed the wicked. We have no obligation to feed these evil bastards that we're supposed to keep ourselves separate from. If we're going to be charged with taking a share in their evil works simply for greeting them, we sure as hell shouldn't feed them. Later, in that same chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul admonished them, where he says, And we instruct you, brethren, in the name of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, you are to avoid every brother conducting himself in a disorderly manner and not in accordance with the tradition which they have received from us. Also, when we were with you, this we instructed you, that if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. For we hear that some among you are conducting themselves in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but rather meddling with others' affairs, like trolling their talk show channels. 
And if anybody obeys not our word through this letter, make him known, not to associate yourselves with him, that he may turn about. And do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, says the faith is not for all. Those outside of the faith, as Paul says, are also outside of our communion. We also see that we avoid communion even with those of our own who do not seek to conform themselves to Christ. Again, from the wisdom of Sirach, from chapter 12, from verse 4, give to the godly man. Help not a sinner. Do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread, and give it not to him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. For thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all the good thou shalt have done to him. For the Most High hates sinners, and will repay vengeance to the ungodly, and keep them against the mighty day of their punishment. Give unto the good, and help not the sinner. We feed our enemies, those of our Christian brethren, who, for one reason or another, are opposed to us. But we do not feed the enemies of Yahweh our God or his Christ. We're told not even to greet those people. We must interpret statements such as what Paul made here in Romans with the context of Paul's Christian worldview expressed throughout his writings, such as we've just read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. There is nothing more important to proper biblical interpretation than context. Verse 21, you must not be overcome by evil, rather overcome evil with that which is good. And once again, we must be careful how we interpret this. Overcoming evil with good does not mean that we placate evil. From Ezekiel chapter 13, the word of Yahweh, from verse 16, to wit, the prophets of Israel, which prophecy concerning Jerusalem, and which see visions of peace for her. And there is no peace, saith Yahweh God. And among the charges against these people, we see in verse 22, because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not turn from his wicked way by promising him life. Therefore ye shall see no more vanity nor divine divinations, for I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. These people were punished for strengthening the hands of the wicked, that they should not return from their wicked ways by promising them life. That's exactly what the Judeo churches do today when they say, oh, love the sinner, hate the sin. 
They strengthen the hands of the wicked, and the wicked are therefore not encouraged or compelled to repent from their sin. And these churches promise them life. We are not obligated to strengthen the hands of the wicked ever. Paul is not contradicting these passages. We have to take and accept Paul's quote from Proverbs in the context of Paul's other statements concerning disgusting and wicked men and sinners and those of our brethren who will not conform to Christ. Because of, even if our brethren do not conform to Christ, they're to be counted not as our enemies, but as his enemies. And Paul stated that in Romans chapter 11, that even those Israelite Judeans, even his enemies, his kinsmen according to the flesh, were enemies concerning the gospel, even though they were among the children of Israel and therefore the chosen of God. So all these things had to be taken in context. If you have an issue with a Christian brother, and you know that he's a Christian brother and he hungers, you put aside your issue. You feed your brother. If you have an issue with an enemy of God, you put your foot in his ass and push him down your stairs. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow night with Martin Luther, part 12. Yahweh willing, I will be here next Friday with Romans chapter 13. Good night.